California. Hey, this is Tim Schaefbo, host of Rock Pile on KPCA LP. On my show, I spin a mix of rock and roll, R&B, punk, surf, rockabilly, and other cool stuff. Rock Pile airs alternating Mondays, 5 to 7 p.m., right here on KPCA 103.3 FM and streaming at kpca.fm. I can't believe he found them. He seems sorry. We very clearly told him not to look up there. I'm honestly impressed that he was able to do it. Right? What did he balance on that big chair? Yeah, I mean... I guess he'll just know what his gifts are this year. I really thought we were in the room. If they can find their presence, they can find a gun. 911, what is your emergency? Here at KPCA LP, Petaluma, California. And I'm Rabbi Ted Feldman of B'nai Israel Jewish Center here in Petaluma and the chair of the Petaluma Community Relations Council. Please forgive a little changes in or noise in background stuff uh, with the program today uh, because of the power outages the transmitter is not working uh, the transmitter for KPCA is on the east side of Petaluma and uh, it had been powered down because of the outage so uh, hopefully people are street listening to the streaming and ultimately to the uh, recording so welcome here we are and in our studio today, I want to welcome for our first segment, uh, Al Hershen, who is a Petaluma resident. And uh, Al has published a book recently, or coming up soon. What's the date? No, it's already published. It's already published. Yeah. Well, welcome to the studio. Thank and uh, we're on the air. And uh, here's an opportunity for us to learn a little bit about you. So you're from New York. Yes, I grew up in the Bronx, uh, went to college in New York at City College. Uh-huh. My father had a candy store right by the Yankee Stadium in the Bronx. We lived on the east side of uh, the Grand Concourse, which we called the Gaza Strip in those days because oh. people with money lived up there and people like myself and my parents without money lived on the east side of the concourse. Did you get any foul balls from Yankee Stadium? Well, we were a little far away, but we used to go to Yankee Stadium and do one of two things. Ask for free tickets, and people would be kind enough to take us in and uh, buy us a hot dog. We'd sit in box seats. Or at the seventh inning, about three or four of my friends and I would go over there, and we'd, we'd run in. Uh-huh. And, uh, of course, we were young, and the older guys couldn't run, but I don't think they cared. So we'd find a seat and watch the 7th, 8th, and ninth inning of the Yankee games. That must have been fun. It was. It was an interesting place and a fun place to grow up. Uh, you know, you, you lived on the streets uh, with your buddies. Right. And you played stickball and every sport imaginable using a broom and a red spalding, and then you played uh, all kinds of other games, going from marbles to ring levio, which is, was the most rough of the games we played. <laughs> well, your book is called The Extraordinary Life of an Ordinary Man. So what, what and it was recently published, what, what made you an ordinary man? 
Well, I, I don't think I have any outstanding skills, you know. Uh, I've grown up and watched people with outstanding skills, and so and have met many of them, both in the legal profession and in my time working around the world. So I just feel that I'm an ordinary guy with the luck of having opportunities come my way, uh, both in, in, in the work I've done here in the United States and the work I've done abroad. So we'll, we'll get to that in a, in a moment, because uh, your story is what this book's about and what we'd like to share with our listeners. But uh, what prompted you to write this memoir? What, prompt, what, what, what go, went on inside that got you to that point? Well, it, it, it's an, it, to me, it, it's fascinating that the book uh, has been written, you know, taken four years, and two editors who I'll talk about. But what prompted me is over the years, many people said to me, you should write a book when I would tell my stories. And I was uh, scared, of, frankly, of writing a book because I didn't think I had the skills. I was not a writer. I had dyslexia, and so I always uh, used speaking as my way to make a living rather than writing. And so what happened is a friend of mine who runs something called the Mesa Refuge, uh, Susan Pillett is her name, and that's a, a refuge for writers, she said to me, you ought to write a book. And instead of just saying that, she then organized a uh, breakfast with a woman named Kim Chernin, who became my first editor. Uh -huh. And Kim said to me after we were writing, and she got out about 500 pages out of me, uh, not the best prose, but she did a pretty good job of cleaning it up. Uh, I said to her, you know, my ego has gotten a hold of me, because at first I just wanted the book for something for my grandchildren to know their history. And then I thought, well, all these people over the years were interested in the stories, and they might be interested in having a, a, a seat at history, front row seat at history. So why don't I write a, a book that people beyond the family would be interested in? Mm -hmm. And then she handed me over to her spouse, Renata Stendhal, who Renata and I worked for the last three years on the book. So, Rada taught me how to write, in a way, by, in terms of context, texturing, all the kinds of things that are important to get people who don't know you to be interested in your book. And, and I can remember her saying to me several times, describe the room. People want to know where they are. Describe the field. Describe what you're talking about. Describe the person. Give it life. And so that's what I did over these three years. And the second part of that is that you have to have cohesion in the book. And some things have to be taken out of the book. 500 pages, for instance. Not even my mother, long deceased, would read. So, so you have to know what to keep in and what to keep out. And you'll see there's a chapter in the, in the book on the Ukraine, where I worked uh, for the U, uh, USAID, United States Agency for International Development, as a consultant. But I also worked for that same age, U.S. agency in Russia 
but I didn't put Russia in because I thought it would be repetitious of uh-huh. what was in the Ukraine. And I thought the Ukraine, since that's the birthplace of my father, would be the more apropos one to write about. And I did, about the, my experiences there. So basically, what I'm giving people in the book is a front row seat, as I said, uh, to history, both here in the United States and around the world. Because in the United States, I was a civil rights lawyer in the Justice Department in the 60s, and then an anti-poverty lawyer in the 70s and 80s, and then I was also in the Carter administration. So in terms of the big changes that occurred in our country, uh, I write about those. And people can have an insight as to how things occur. Also, I write about, and about a third of the book is about my experience abroad as an international development lawyer. I lived in Indonesia with my wife for nine years. We built a home on Bali. I traveled the world with two governors, Indonesian governors, who I worked for as I tried to get companies and finance to build infrastructure for them, everything from power plants to uh, high-speed ferries. Uh, And so that was nine years I spent in Indonesia. I was also one of the first American consultants in Russia, Ukraine, Albania, and other places, all of which are in the book. Some of which are the experiences, for instance, like my time in Jamaica, I didn't put in the book. Because you can only have so many stories about your work in certain places. You know, in many ways, uh, I've always, when I've looked at a book that uh, has been edited, where there's an editor who's bringing in other people's works, not not quite like you're talking about, but the editor is making some decisions. And so even on a book that one person has written, the editor is helping you remove from that book things that are redundant, that may not be of peak interest, and so the final product really represents not just your work, but the work of the person who has edited your book. Absolutely. And in this case, uh, Renata was so good at it and helpful that her name appears on the cover. So it's Al Hirschen with Renata Stendhal. And, and she deserves all that credit because right. of what she did. Right. That makes a difference. So... Let's see, how do we go through your journey a little bit here through life and find out? I guess I'm most curious, at least in the, in the early stages of our discussion here, uh, of what it was like uh, the Civil Rights Department uh, in the 60s. That's big stuff. I mean, the, the Civil Rights Acts, the laws, the protests in the South, uh, the racial issues that were confronting in the world. What? Tell us, give us some snippets of what you were doing and and all that. I'll give you a few parts of that. Uh, I think I went to the Civil Rights Division of the Justice Department rather than become an assistant U.S. attorney in New York after I was a law clerk for a federal judge because of the history of growing up in the Bronx and also being a Jew. Mm -hmm. Uh, The Holocaust was something I grew up with in my day. And... I also faced and saw uh, what prejudice can do, uh, both with my friends in high school, one of my best friends, Cecil Harris, who I ran track with. Uh, I watched on how he had to face that in school because he and a 
a white young cheerleader who were in love, and the parents weren't into that. And they prevented him from going to Dartmouth, in fact, because they said, unless you give her up, we're going to prevent you from going to Dartmouth. So those experiences said to me, maybe I could go down to the Justice Department and be of, of help. And there were two parts of what I did when I was there. Uh, I was in Mississippi and Tennessee uh, in the 60s. So this is 65 through 68. And you could see the change close up. So in 1966, when I was in Mississippi, I was there for the 66 elections. And we were trying to make sure that they ran smoothly. And in fact, it was a dangerous period of time. So we were on a one and two hour call to the FBI uh, to let them know where we were and how to do things. And I would go into, uh, this I did on my own, I would go into a, a, a store there that sold you know, all kinds of goods as they are in the South. And I, with my accent, I'd make a fake call to the FBI. So they know, A, this guy with this accent wasn't a normal person down there, so maybe he's with the feds, and maybe they won't mess with me. And uh, that was one of the things I did. Then I also, we were under orders not to get out of the car uh, when we went to visit people, but you couldn't do your job. So I got out of the car on the day of the election and shook hands with all the blacks as they streamed into the polling places, and I remember the joy I felt when one of the leaders called me up and told me that we had gotten a very good, uh, extremely good turnout. Another example of what happened in that same situation is you had to go to the registrar in a county and, and the judge of that county, and this was all in Baden, Mississippi, and, and tell them you were here and what you're going to do. So I went to visit the uh, the registrar, after meeting with the judge, and walked into the room and showed him my badge. And he said, well, what are you, Lyndon Baines, dash, 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 uh, want from me? Mm. And then he got extremely upset, and he started to throw papers everywhere. And I thought, well, the better part of valor was just to back up and walk out, let him calm down. And I got into my car, and I started to drive away, and I noticed two guys got into their pickup truck. And uh, as you know, especially in the South, people always kept their rifles in the back of the pickup truck. And I'd start to go from 40 to 50 miles in an hour, and these guys were right with me. And I had written the brief in the Viola Luzo case, when I say I had written the brief, I was the low guy on the totem pole writing the brief. Okay, you can take credit. It's okay. <laughs> and uh, uh, so I, I had watched her. Uh, I knew I was aware of her. I didn't watch it. I was aware of her being killed in, uh, during the time of the march between Selma and Montgomery and the KKK uh, following her in a car. So I went from 50 to 60 to 70 miles an hour, and these guys were still with me. So I made a Sterling Moss, for those people old enough to know who Sterling Moss is. He's an old race car driver, English race car driver. I made a Sterling Moss left-hand turn into the black community because I figured they'd hide me. 
But the truth of the matter is, they weren't after me. They never followed me. It was all in my mind. Mm. So, it's an example of what can happen. Another example of what can happen when I was in Tennessee uh, for school desegregation cases, uh, and also the same thing happened in Mississippi. Uh, the sheriff saw me on a Saturday coming into a bar uh, with several black leaders of the movement there, and he came up to me and asked me what I was doing here. And being a young, smart-ass kid, I said to him, uh, well, I showed him my badge from the Justice Department and said I'm from the largest finance agency in the country because he had asked me if I was with a finance agency. <laughs> well, again, it turned out I learned from that one about my own prejudice mm. because, oh, this guy looked as redneck as you were going to look. He was a guy who was open to and was helping the blacks stay safe. He didn't want me going into a bar because he knew people could be drunk, and if I was with a finance agency, there could be trouble. Mm. So these are the kinds of things you saw. You also saw uh, in the segregation cases this little girl who was 12 years old living with her grandmother, going through the uh, horrors of walking the line into school and being called all kinds of names on her own. She walked into the school by herself, and I asked her, well, have you been schooled either by SNCC or any Corfu or any of the groups that were down there? And she said, no. I said, well, why do you want to do this? Because I know your grandmother's opposed to you doing this. And she looked at me and she said, because I want a better education. Mm -hmm. Amazing. And it's amazing throughout my life to see that spirit of the human spirit, both in Mississippi and Tennessee, California, and all over the world. Individuals with incredible spirit that make you proud to be a human being. Yeah, and a certain strength that it takes for them to overcome the odds that are surrounding them. Oh, and yes, of course. Certain strength. So after those experiences, uh, without diverting too far from the, the text of your, uh, of your uh, memoir, when you look at the world today, in the, particularly in America, and see the divisions, and not just about policies about water or policies about climate and stuff, but about people, what, what, is, what are your reactions to it when you see that some of those same divisions, uh, even though the word black may not be in there, but it's other people, other minorities, the languages, the immigrants. What's, what's your experience with that now? What's that like? Well, it's extremely troublesome, yeah. of course, to, to see that. Because one thought after my time in both the civil rights movement and in the anti-poverty movement, things were moving in, a, in the right direction. But, you know, democracy and change for good is always fragile, and we need to be on our toes about it. So different presidents can mean different things. Right. And prejudice and violence are just underneath, in my experience, the veneer of things. So when I sat and I uh, watched for the second time the burning of Chinatown in Jakarta, Indonesia, and I was on top of the building I lived in, 
with the staff watching that burn. Again, that was a lesson about once you unleash uh, what has been hidden, it can have very severe consequences. People can die from it, uh, and people can lose their livelihood from it. So I think we have to be on our toes about what's going on here now and not put our head in the sand and stand up and talk about it. Uh, recognizing that all you need is a small group to start going down the wrong path. And violence, as I've said, is just beneath the veneer. In a country as large as ours, with so many different ethnic and religious groups, it's always a balancing act. And one of the things that can trigger in the worst ways uh, violence are people's views and, and statements around religion or around ethnicity. Those are things to be uh, careful of. But I've always been a, a positive person and a believer that if you keep trying, things do change. I'm a big fan of uh, Albert Camus, the French philosopher and writer. And when I was in college, I wrote my dissertation. I was a philosophy major on Camus. And, and the thing he said, which I believe, uh, and he used, uh, you know, you roll the ball up the hill, and it's going to come down again. But then you roll it up the hill, and each time you roll it up the hill, there's less hill to roll it up. Mm -hmm. So if you keep pushing, things do change. But it's a slow process. It is a slow process. You know, I was thinking in all of these American experiences that you had, and one of my observations of America in general, of our culture, is that people think that there's not too much happening outside in the world, outside of America. They judge the world by their microcosm of where they live. And... Uh, to have traveled somewhere else and spent time in other countries, how did, how did that affect you, how you viewed America and how that how you related to being uh, part of the system in America? Because knowing that so many Americans think that the American way is the best way and the only way, and people haven't traveled and been exposed to these other cultures. Well, the truth of the matter is that there are many ways to live your life is what I've seen. So, for instance, if you're in Indonesia, as compared to America, religion is prominent in every facet of your life. It's prominent in government. So all the meanings might start with a prayer. Now, compared to America, that's quite opposite. But you get to understand that both are worthwhile ways of doing it. And for me, what I've seen is people sort of choose certain ways of life because that's where they're born. For me, I look at all those and find very good things from, from every place I've been to incorporate into my own life. But I would rather be in a place where there's most freedom of expression. And as I go around the world, especially the, the third world, whether it's in Russia, Ukraine, Albania, or places in Asia, I like the freedom of America, even though freedom in America can also go down the wrong path. Right. 
So the Constitution of freedom, right? Yeah. But it could go the wrong well, way, right? And what I've seen is all countries have contradictions. So, for instance, if we're talking Russia and Ukraine, uh, we're talking Russia and Ukraine, this is the country of great poets and writers, and it's also the countries of pogroms, and it's also the uh, place of, of their helping the Nazis uh, kill the Jews. So just to know that. And in fact, if people, I've noticed I only have a few more minutes, if people want to continue this conversation, they can do that with me on my website at alhershen, H-I-R-S-H-E-N, uh, dot com. Well, the conversation is, is an important one in our country today. Um, and certainly given your experience and uh, your connections around the world over this journey of your life, which has taken you to many places, uh, all of that input is so, so important in today's world because many people in America don't have that, don't have that notion, don't have that view of a, a world out there where it's okay to be something else other than what we are here. That's really a tough world to have. Well, the interesting part of that is that's true everywhere you go. Of course. So the Indonesian thinks that about the American. Of course. And the darker black-skinned person gets more prejudice than the lighter black-skinned person uh -huh. in many countries I've been. And the Arab culture uh, feels the same way. I'll give you, if I, I think I have time, to give you one last little story Please. on this. Uh, I was in Morocco. And I wanted to see the Jewish quarter in Morocco. And this little kid was my guy. And I said to him, I want to take me to the Jewish quarter, please. And he said, looking at me, you don't want to go there. And I said, why don't I want to go there? And he said, because they're dirty. And that just cracked me up. <laughs> that's the funniest thing, because that's what I heard about other people here from Jews. <laughs> right, right. It's, um, yeah. So the bottom line, of course, is that our world needs to be constantly in vigil and constantly alert to the sensitivities and needs of human beings and uh, striving to make a just world for all of us. So we're going to need to wind down our discussion. I refer everyone back to alherschen.com. And the book, the wonderful book, The Extraordinary Story of an Ordinary Man, uh, just published. So thank you for being in our studio today. You are listening to Talking with Rabbi Ted on KPCALP, Petaluma, California. We'll be back for our second segment in three minutes.
Welcome back to the second segment of Talking with Rabbi Ted. Again, I'm Rabbi Ted Feldman of B'nai Israel Jewish Center here in Petaluma and the chair of the Petaluma Community Relations Council. And here we are for our second segment today. I just would like to note that we had a general meeting of the Community Relations Council this morning, and it was just so wonderful to have 25 people in our room sharing with us all of the projects that they're working on to hopefully make our community uh, stronger, better, taking care of the people who need to be taken care of. So that was great. And I'd like to welcome into our studio uh, Adrian Saslow and Jeannie Pretzel, who are here to talk about with us the gas station over at Safeway on McDowell and the work they've been doing over the past how long? Um, well, for me, I started in 2014. Uh, right after I bought my house, I got a letter saying, there's a gas station going to go in. And so I built a website and started a Facebook page saying, could, could we not? And then um, the real restart of that happened in May of 2018 when we found out that we were having a planning commission meeting. And that's when everybody was like, oh, wait, we thought this project was dead. So after that, we we got together and really started working on this again. And Jeannie, how did you get uh, involved in this? Um, well, I'm a teacher at McDowell Elementary School, so I had heard wind of it back when Adrian first heard about the project, but then, as she explained, it kind of seemed like it died. Um, but uh, as it came back to the forefront of what was happening in our city and um, became something that could potentially be an extreme environmental threat to the McDowell community, uh, I and a lot of other teachers and um, parents at our site became very aware and concerned about um, the health of our community at McDowell. Okay, so before we go into the implications of the station being there, uh, perhaps you could bring us up to date as to what the status is of the, of the station at this point. And I know you've been involved in the, as of yesterday, in some court uh, processes. So wh where are we? Uh, we got to have our first court date for Save Petaluma has appealed the approval by the city council of the project. And so we're taking it to the Superior Court of California. And our first court date yesterday was um, as exciting as legalese could be to listen <laughs> to it. But it comes down to the tentative ruling from Judge Wick and hoping that that stands um, because it's really an exciting, hopeful thing if that becomes his ruling, though it's not the end because we'll still get to go to court a bunch, but it means we have a case. Jeannie has gone over the tentative ruling with a fine, uh, fine comb and can talk to you more about those details. So, yeah, I can elaborate, although I do have to... Um, Much, I realize. Yeah. There are limitations. Oh, yeah, I had to read it about 50,000 times to even begin to make sense of it. Um, but some things that are really clear is that um, he ruled in favor, uh, in our favor, on every issue. Um, there's been a tentative um, a ruling for a, an injunction, which, if finalized would stop the uh, construction and uh, until there's a final ruling on the on the whole project 
Um, it also, um, Safeway was attempting to throw out the case entirely, which was denied. Um, and there, there were very, uh, there was an anti-slap suit filed, um, which was also denied tentatively. What is an anti-slap and that, suit? That's where it gets very uh, complicated. <laughs> okay, don't, yeah, so um, we are alleging that uh, that Safeway's attorneys threatened individual city council members and the council with a lawsuit if they were to require an environmental impact report. Uh, Safeway was claiming that that was somehow defamation, although those comments were made in the public record and are have been recorded. Um, so they they were kind of it's somewhat of an anti-defamation suit, which which doesn't apply in a situation we're not suing them um, for any monetary um, amount. We're just trying to hold them accountable to, to statements that they made and threats that they made to the council. So a slap suit is, we were actually expecting to get hit with a slap suit, which is strategic litigation against public participation. So usually a slap suit would be like a bigger corporation or a bigger entity, somebody with a lot more money and time and lawyers to say, you shouldn't, you shouldn't do this. You shouldn't bring this up. We're going to sue you if you bring this up. And instead, they said, you're trying to hurt us and call us bullies and make us not have a suit, which was just astounding because we do have on video from the city council meetings a lot of the language from the, the Safeway lawyer saying that they're going to sue city council members individually and the whole city if they don't allow this project to go forward. So, it's wow. interesting. So, let, let's actually now take us back and then we'll come back to where the situation is at the moment and what you, what you conceive of your next steps to be. So, what's the problem with the gas station there? Why did, why did you, uh, what, what did you have, what proof did you have, what points did you make that you wanted the public and our city council, our leadership to hear uh, in their decision process? Well, one of the, the immediate things, you think a gas station next to a bunch of homes and schools, and it would be, six. we call it 16 pumps, 16 handles that people can be putting in their car at once, and um, that, that puts off some warning bells. And then looking into it, the EPA has a recommendation from, like, 1989 that a school and a gas station should be built um, a thousand feet apart, and this, by Safeway's own calculation, it would be sixty feet, six zero, not a thousand. So that's huge away from the preschool, and then you've got daycare, and then you've got the elementary school, and you've got the little league fields. You have the adult education center that also has daycare, so or night care, so the adults can go to school, and McDowell Park. That's huge. Now it's not a law. You. Can you are allowed to build a gas station close to a, a school, but you're not allowed to build a school close to a gas station. There's this weird law, and, you know, some laws in, in our state are weird, and um, that's it should be a law that you can't build gas stations next to schools, but there it is. And so that put out, 
put out a lot for us. And since then, we've done a lot of environmental studies uh, with the help of some other groups. And we've got the backing of the Sierra Club. And moving forward, like the name, No Gas Here, we don't want the gas station right there. We, as a group, aren't anti-gas. We would love cheap gas. I would love cheap gas. I live right across the street. How convenient that would be for me. Even if it were somewhere else in the shopping center, we would have been fine. It would have been over. But that wasn't an option, according to Safeway and according to the shopping center owner. Um, I'd like to speak a little bit also to some of Safeway's claims that there have been multiple studies done, and I think it's really important to point out that those studies were done by Safeway consultants, and that um, under a lot of examination, there were multiple errors and omissions in those, the health risk assessment that they are using to claim that <coughs> there are no significant environmental factors. Um, specifically, they when they talked about the construction phase, they chose to use modeling tools that were not the recommended tool that actually use wind data from Santa Rosa, which blows in the complete opposite direction of what we're, we have right there on McDowell Boulevard. So uh, on that location, the air from that gas station would blow directly onto into the preschool, which is 60 feet away, and continue in, onto the school campus. Um, additionally, in their studies, they eliminate or um, omitted multiple sources of um, emissions, including the 146 bus stops and idling that happen every day across the street from that preschool. Um, they didn't include um, Washington Street, and that should have been included in, in their studies. So um, that is, is was a, a huge concern when we're looking at a study that the city is using to, to base their opinion of this project, and we as laymen can find error after error after error, that some of them they went back and addressed, but many of them were never addressed. It's, it's just a big red flag. So, uh, I mean, I just, I'm asking this question. It's, uh, it's not an opinion. It's, uh, so, if you have all these buses stopping there and idling in front of the school, isn't that a worse issue than whatever may come from the, from the gas station? It is an issue. Um, there are uh, thresholds that are considered to be um, significant, um, and once you exceed that threshold, there's a much higher chance of, of negative health impacts. Um, so I'm not saying there's no significant from the significance from those buses. I think they they need to be considered along with the traffic, uh, thorough uh, consideration of all the traffic. However. That's not something we can affect at this point. Um, the city can eventually go to cleaner burning vehicles. Uh, hopefully we'll have electric buses at some point. But the gas station is. The gas station is something that we have control over right now. And those sources absolutely need to be considered in these reports that are being done right now um, that they're evaluating the, the safety of, of this project. And they were not. They were omitted. One of the concerns in the city was, uh, not, not the city government, but popular, had to do with the uh, source of funding for the court and for all that, uh, that the, the accusation uh, or that funding for to help you in your process came from outside sources, outsources outside of our community. 
Would you care to uh, address yeah, that? Yeah, actually, I've, I've heard some of the, the rumors that I work for Big Oil, that I am, I've also heard the counter rumor that I'm part of some campaign to kill gas stations um, across California. So that's interesting, conflicting information. But it makes you pretty powerful. I know. <laughs> um, I I actually find it personally insulting yeah. that people think I work for Big Oil. Um, I have put in so much personal time and effort on this, and we have been collecting donations from so many different people in our community, different business owners, different individuals, different nonprofits, and there have been. A number of people who have not been able to help us because they're afraid of Safeway's lawyers. And so the people who have donated who don't want Safeway to know who they are, I'm going to absolutely honor that. And then there have also been donations that are absolutely anonymous. You can look at our GoFundMe page and anonymous over and over again seems to add up to our biggest donor. Um, He's a pretty famous guy. Famous guy. So... (laughs) That if somebody doesn't want to be known because they're afraid of Safeway, I honor that. They're, before we became our own nonprofit, which we did this summer, yay, we were trying to get a fiscal sponsor. So having an already established nonprofit take us on and, and allow us to give um, receipts to donors and things. And there was one, um, bless the Center for Environmental Health, who wouldn't take us on after all. They said they would. And then their lawyer said, no, I'm, we're sorry, we just can't do it. And they, I know they have other fiscal projects. And it's heartbreaking that people are afraid of this big corporation. Um, so that's, that's where we are on money. Um, some of those people who have made some of those accusations, it's a shame that they didn't help us in the first place. They seem to be people who are... Um, environmentalists who really care about these things, who are otherwise wonderful people who do a lot for the community, and why in the beginning they they didn't stand with us to begin with is puzzling, because this seems like something that they would have really cared about, but instead they just want to make unfounded accusations. Uh, among the uh, issues, many issues in our world and in Petaluma, uh, the price of gasoline, of course, is uh, is always there. I, I mentioned it at a meeting just a little while ago this morning, and when Matt Brown, the Argus Courier uh, editor, was here, he was talking about doing investigative reporting. So I said, how about checking out why gasoline is so expensive here? So you can imagine that for many people in the community, having quote, cheaper gas available uh, would be a very positive thing. And I hear that you're not opposed to having cheaper gas available. You're opposed to the location. Yes, absolutely. I mean, personally, I I have to drive, and I notice when I go to the pump that I am paying a lot. Um, But the need for gas or or more affordable gas is is not the issue here. The issue is where would you put a gas station? And... I think every single person or the majority of people in this town, including those who are in support of this gas station, would not want their children attending a school that's 60 feet from a 16-pump gas station that's emitting known carcinogens. So, you know, it really comes down to to the golden rule here um, that is really universal across all cultures is we treat other people the way we want to be treated. 
Okay, so we don't wish well on other people what we wouldn't wish on ourselves. So at the school where you work, the parents are uh, uh, how how are they organ are they part of this and what's that been like in, in the school? This um, you know our our school is one of the most low income schools in Sonoma County, and we have a very involved parent community to the extent that they are able to do that. They don't have the privilege of staying at home. Most of our families, both parents are working. Some parents are working two or three jobs. So they are talking, they are following the issue, they are donating when they can, they're coming to meetings when they're able to, they're very concerned. Um, we do have the highest level of asthma at our school in any of the schools in Petaluma. Um, so yes, this is very much on their radar. Their ability to participate in the process is limited just to life circumstances. Yeah, and I'm aware that uh, in, uh, for people in low-income families, the feeling of empowerment is very different than we might conceive for ourselves in our community, thinking that we can actually do something about something in, in our world. And for them, uh, their status almost makes them feel powerless with it. So add that to the Absolutely. circumstances mm -hmm. of life. Uh, and as much as we would like to empower them and have them stand up, uh, it's, it's a challenge at times, and I'm, I'm aware of that. And I, I, I think it's great that you're that they're aware of the situation and that they are behind the process to judge whether this should be there and want to make sure their kids are healthy and safe. I've said before that I am really lucky to be white privileged enough to fight this fight, that I have the time to put in, that I speak English as a first language, that I can expose myself at city council meetings, people know where I live, um, I live right across the street. It's but that people know that, and I can be there. That I have the time. That my husband can stay home with the kids. Um, for most of this, I haven't had a job, or I've worked from my own home, and that's that's a lot more than most of my neighborhood can say. Um, North Bay Organizing Project at one point did a little overlay of what the demographics of our neighborhood is, and my skin color is an exception. So that's, um, that's something I'm trying to utilize in this. Yeah, and it's an important piece of it too. It's an important piece of it because part of being, uh, being concerned about the gas station being there is also being concerned about the population that it's affecting and who they are and their, their abilities to deal with some of these issues. And it's, it's great. So, where do you see it going from here? What, uh, what do you need? What, do you, what would you like the community to hear from you about the next steps? Um, is it all in the hands of the court right now? Is there what? Well, at this point, yes, it, it is in the hands of the court. Um, there will be a, a ruling issued, hopefully within the next few days, um, in regard to the tentative ruling. Um, and we're hoping, we're hopeful that will be um, considered permanent, um, and then that will open it up for further court dates down the road to decide the further merits of the case. Um, the the judge has made several comments that support our allegation that the city council uh, made their decision under duress and threat of being sued individually, um, and that uh, some other specifics in terms of that this that CEQA 
which is California um, uh, Environmental Air Quality Act, does apply in this case, which um, the city was and Safeway was saying it did not. Um, so there's been several signs that he understands and is in agreement with what we are alleging. So what we really want now is for um, the judge to say that Safeway does, in fact, need an environmental impact report. And that doesn't just apply to soil quality and things, but how that affects the people. So you say environmental impact, but it's the environment for us. And um, what we need in the meantime is to have fundraisers, to have parties, to make sure people know that we're still fighting this because those fences went up and they think it's done. And it's not. But court costs are expensive. And fortunately, our lawyer is only having us cover the court costs, which means making a lot of copies of paperwork. It means you have to pay to have somebody deliver paperwork to somebody else. You have to pay just to get into court. It's, it's a lot of money to do this, and we don't think it's going to be over anytime soon. Um, so that's, that's what we're doing now. You can donate on our website. Uh, no gas here dot org. The, um, yeah, the, uh, the, the, the broader question of what you just described, which is the accessibility of justice, of the system of justice, uh, it's, it's a pretty tough area because many people can't afford those court costs and don't have access, can't file suits, can't defend themselves in ways uh, between legal costs, court costs, etc. So that's a whole other issue, I realize, and we're not going to solve it here. I wish we could, uh, among the many issues in the world, but that certainly is, and certainly does take funds to be able to process this case. Um, and uh, the neighborhood around, how is the, uh, the neighborhood, neighbors organized in this? Are they, what's happening with the neighborhood people? Well, I have personally knocked on basically all of my neighbors' doors, uh -huh. and there have been a lot of signs in the neighborhood and a lot of donations in the neighborhood. Um, some of those signs have gone missing. Um, so that's interesting. Um, but as far as we said, the, the actual participation, the actual being able to show up to a lot of things is hard for our particular neighborhood. There's, it, it reminds me of why most of the city council members come from the west side. There is a bit of a divide that a lot of people don't want to acknowledge as far as how money can relate to free time and the, the ability to do these sorts of things. Uh, just on that note, the uh, Petaluma Community Relations Council is actually doing a series, and the first uh, in the series on October 28th at 6.30 at the Petaluma Library is going to be on affordability in Petaluma. And we're starting with some economists and people who can put those into number form and help make it clear what that looks like, uh, but also uh, to give the people who come to that meeting a chance to talk about it in small groups because affordability is a, a major issue mm -hmm. in here. And uh, just the yeah. whole discussion, part of it is, is around that, is around that issue and the, the populations who are affected by it. Oh, absolutely. I know my husband is a high school science teacher over in Napa, and if he worked here at one of the high schools, he would make $10,000 less a year because they don't get paid as much. 
And so it's more expensive to live in Petaluma, and you would make less money. Right. It's it's yeah. a really interesting thing. It's part of why cheaper gas would be a real boon to a lot of people, right. Right. especially if you're commuting to Napa. But uh, that's that's not the way it is. So it seems to me that maybe the two of you, uh, the committee, I don't know who else is involved specifically, have also taken flack for being participating in this. How is that? Have you? I have had zero negative feedback from anyone I have okay. spoken to. The only um, place where I felt where anybody was giving me flack, it was at a city council from the Safeway attorneys. Uh-huh. Um, so I, I have had nothing but support in my conversations with people across this community. Strangers walk up to me when I'm wearing my T-shirt and are, are in disbelief that this project ever got as far as it did. Okay. And for you, Adrian? I... Um, used to stand out front of Safeway with a petition and actually collecting some donations, which Safeway thought was just absurd that people shopping at Safeway would give us money to stop their gas station. But there you go. And I had the one that sticks out the most was a man with his two children who were anywhere between the age of 8 and 12. And he said, what do I care? My kids don't go there. And I was just astounded. And I hope that his children realize that that's not the way you should approach the world. Yeah, I've heard that. That, that just I've killed that. me. I've heard people say that uh, they don't want to pay property taxes because it, a lot of it goes to support the schools, and I don't have any children. I'm older, and, and uh, my children have graduated and all that. And it takes a deep breath inside and... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and that's where we really need to come back and look at ourselves as human beings right. and consider that golden rule. Who are we really if we don't care about other people and right. if we don't treat them the way we want to be treated? You know, you remind me that there's this teaching in, in my tradition uh, when the Israelites were crossing the Red Sea and the, the hordes of people, according to biblical description, came up to this water and God said he was going to split the sea, but people were afraid to walk into the water, right? You'd be pretty afraid to walk into the water if it's just there. And so it took one man to put his toe in the water to cause it to split. And that one man was the hero because he was willing to step forward, to have the guts to believe in something and to make a difference in the world. And in some ways, that's what the two of you have done with this, and we appreciate that. And we thank you for making the efforts that you have. Adrian and Jeannie, thank you for joining me today on Talking with Rabbi Ted. You are listening to KPCALP, Petaluma, California. Mm-hmm.